worshiping our holy and magnificent God together. Uh, Just for starters, I want you to know I have the worst cold that I've had in a couple of years going today. It's a little bit better today than it has been the previous four days. Not much better, though. I apologize in advance for the condition of my voice. Uh, I'm doing various vocal tricks to make it do what it needs to do right now so that you're not tortured uh, by it. Uh, And just for the record, anything I say today that sounds out there, let's just blame it on the medication I'm on. Right? Uh, I picked up this cold last weekend after sitting in the Rimrock Auto Arena. Uh, That's the venue formerly known as the Metra over in Billings. I was there watching the all-class state wrestling tournament, which, by the way, is literally one of the greatest sporting events in the region, hands down. Any of you ever been to that thing? It is a remarkable event, isn't it? Twelve simultaneous wrestling mats, hundreds of wrestlers, all classes of schools across the state, thousands, literally thousands of fans pack out the arena, and their uh, germs landed on me. Like a giant Petri dish over there. Yuck. I've told you before, our oldest boys, Joshua and Silas, they wrestle for the Big Bozeman High School. Silas managed to make it to the state tournament, which is why we were over there watching. It's a double elimination tournament, meaning you're in until you lose two matches and then you're out. So Friday morning of last week, matches start. Silas, unfortunately, has a bum knee. He got this bum knee the weekend before at divisionals uh, in another match, and it was a bugger. I mean, the thing was just a bugger. He didn't practice all week. His knee hurt like heck. It's swollen up like a water balloon. He's popping ibuprofen and icing the thing until the cows come home, and it is not cool. But that's the knee he's got, right? We're not going to like get him a new one or anything, and so Silas, you just you got to make your knee work, right? So he goes out for his first match on Friday morning. He wrestles a kid who just beat him by one point earlier in the season, and he loses that match. It's a bummer. Now he's got to win, right? If he wants to stay in the thing, he's got to win his next match, and he didn't. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's a bummer. His knee hurt like crazy. He didn't feel like he could rely on it. He couldn't really go on offense. He lost out of, a, out of the state tournament. A double-barreled bummer, I call it. Now, when he lost, I saw Silas walking off of the mat, and he was just forlorn. I'm sitting in the sort of the lowest level of seating that you could sit in, which is about 12 or so feet up off the floor of the arena, and I'm watching him with this forlorn look on his face walk off of the mat, and I really, I'm a dad, right? So I want to go down onto the floor of the arena, and I want to give him a big old hug. I want to scoop him up, and I want to tell him how incredibly proud of him we are, tell him how we know that he did his absolute best, and that there's next season, right? I wanted to tell him to hold his head up high, be really proud of his effort. I mean, the kid's been wrestling for Two seasons. What he accomplished is pretty remarkable. But they won't let me down there. Right? Only coaches and managers and wrestlers get to go down there. So I just have to sit, stuck to my seat, waiting, waiting, waiting for him to come up. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, he emerges. Here he comes. And he was so darn sad. I just sort of watched him walk across sort of catwalk thing. And here he came. So sad. He's barely walking, sort of dragging his right leg behind him. He's toting an ice bag for his knee. And he plops down in the seat right behind me because there wasn't a seat in our row. It was full. So I turn around, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like climb over, and I'm going to sit in the empty seat that's next to him and sort of put my arm around him. And, but before I can do that, because I'm 37, almost 38 years old, not as spry as I used to be, cat-like reflexes are long gone. And, and so... 
I'm making my way over the seat and little Jasmine, who's seated just a few rows uh, seats down from me, she sees Silas come and she, you know, spry as a spring chicken, she bounds at six years old, baby of the family, she tears over the back of her seat and she plops herself down right on Silas's lap. I'm still trying to negotiate over, right? And there she is and she's already sitting right on his lap. And as I'm trying to negotiate the back of my seat, I hear what she's saying to Silas. Just picture this in your mind's eye. Little Jasmine sitting on Silas's lap, and she starts to play with Silas's hair. Now, Silas's hair at this point in time is orange-brown. It's been bleached out with a $6.99 bottle of gunk from Target that he and a bunch of guys from the team transformed their hair with. It is a sight to behold. Whoa. <laughs> Jasmine has her face just inches away from Silas's face. She's playing with his hair, and she says, Silas, you are a great wrestler. Exactly. And I'm hearing all this like, like this, right? <laughs> Silas, you are a great wrestler. Silas, you are the best. I love you, my Silas. That's what she always calls him. Jasmine calls Silas, my Silas. And that unfolds like in the matter of seconds, right? I'm still trying to get my keister up over the back of the seat and into the chair next to it. And I saw that and I heard that. What Jasmine said to her big brother, and I, I just melted. I just turned into a puddle, right? Then and there are people, all other Bozeman fans are sitting all around us, and they're just melting as they watch and heard all that. Silas melted. He's got big old tears streaming down his face. Now, don't tell him I told you that. It's got to be our little secret. 17-year-old boys don't like to know anybody to know they cry, right? But I finally managed to negotiate my way over the back of my seat and sit down next to Silas, but I didn't need to say much. I didn't need to say anything, but I'm a preacher, and that's what we do, and so I did. <laughs> I put my arm around him, and I told him I loved him. I said, great job, son. I'm so incredibly proud of you, and we'll get him next year. We'll get him next year. And there's a real timeliness of words, isn't there? The wrong words spoken to Silas in that moment, they can have quite a devastating effect on him, on his desire to ever wrestle or do anything for that matter. Imagine I'm the overbearing jerk dad and I jump up out of my seat and I berate him for losing, for not staying off of his back, for not going on offense enough. If I'm that dad, I crush him, don't I? Does he ever want to wrestle again if I do that thing? No, he doesn't want to do anything, right? But the right words spoken to Silas in that moment to anyone, as a matter of fact, in that moment, they have an incredibly powerful way of lifting someone's vision for what could be out in the future, right? Hard work, perseverance, the drive to fulfill God-given potential are all ignited with the right words, which is exactly what this weekend is all about. We call it vision weekend. And it's all about the words not that I have for us, but that God has for us as a church that really, and listen carefully to this, are going to define the trajectory of our next couple of decades as a church community or for as long as Jesus gives us. The next couple of decades or as long as Jesus gives us. This is big. This is timely. And these words, not from me, but from the Lord today, they really, really matter. They really, really matter. And it all starts with this. I didn't give you a notes page today, so if you want to write some things down, I invite you to take out that card that's in your chair pocket. You can scratch some notes 
on there. It all starts here. Journey, we must return to the original mission of the church. We must return to the original mission of the church. Now, you take your Bible, and you start at the beginning of the text. You read all the way through to the very end. You see again and again and again that our God is on a redeeming mission in this world. You read the Bible cover to cover, and you ought to be frequently blown away by the distance God goes to to redeem and save and restore and renew humanity. We are the highest order of God's entire creation. And the lengths to which God goes is astounding, isn't it? Now let me walk this out for you. Without any question whatsoever, the hinge point of the entire Old Testament is the exodus of Israel. Read the book of Exodus in the Old Testament and you see that God divinely intervenes in human history to set the nation of Israel, his chosen people, free from oppression and slavery that had been placed on them by the Egyptians. Hinge point of the Old Testament, the Exodus of Israel. Fast forward from there to the New Testament. The hinge point of the entire New Testament is God divinely intervening in human history to set his people free from oppression and slavery once again. Now, it absolutely looks a little bit different, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, it's Moses challenging Pharaoh to set his fellow Israelites free, remember. Now, interestingly, Moses was an Israelite, but wasn't an Israelite at the same time, wasn't he? That's fascinating. You go to the New Testament, what happened there? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he challenges death, hell, the grave, and Satan in order to secure the freedom of his captive kinfolk. That's us. Again, interestingly, while Jesus is one of us, he is not one of us at the same time. Now check this out, because this gets lost on a whole bunch of Christians a whole bunch of the time. In both of those instances of freedom bringing, both by Moses and by Jesus, the freedom that they're bringing isn't just from something, but get this, it's to something else. It's to something new, something different, something that wasn't before. What was it for the slaves of ancient Israel? It was the promised land, wasn't it? From slavery to the promised land, the land that the scriptures testify ran with milk and honey. Holy smokes. It's quite a place. For we, more modern followers of Jesus Christ, we're headed where? To what? It isn't just heaven. No, it's actually John 10, 10, abundant life from slavery, from oppression to John 10, 10, abundant, full life in Jesus Christ. Heaven, yes, but it's abundant life first. And every single thing else in the Old and New Testament points back to that central theme. From this to something new, something else, something different. You read the Old Testament again and again and again. God is at work on behalf of his people. Read the New Testament again and again and again. God is at work on behalf of his people. In the Old Testament of the Bible, he leads the nation of Israel by a pillar of fire and a cloud. His continual constant presence. For us, for New Testament followers of Jesus Christ, his continual presence comes through the Holy Spirit of God. Abiding, permanently indwelling 
the lives of we who are his followers. And he's indwelled us, he's fulfilled us, filled us as we embark on this mission. What is the mission? Acts chapter one, verse eight. Here's the text, the words of Christ. What are we supposed to be doing? You will be, this is us, church, this is us. This gets to the original mission of the church. Be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. Telling people about me everywhere. Everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Another way to look at that is to say from where you are, right here, locally, out from there in concentric circles, all the way to the ends of the earth. That's our mission. You will, that's us, be my witnesses, Jesus says. And the parallel in both the Old and New Testament of Scripture is God's involvement in human history. God has a purpose. God has an assignment for we who have been set free by him. And it is not just about what we've been set free from, as amazing as that gift is, and it is, isn't it? It is amazing everything that Jesus has set us free from. But really, at the end of the day, it's all about what we've been set free to. New. And you remember what happened after God led Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt's bond of slavery. Where'd they go? They went to Mount Sinai, didn't they? They go to the mountain. And it's interesting that God calls Moses back to that place because it was there that Moses had that ever so powerful encounter with God in the burning bush, that very defining conversation about the trajectory of his life that actually launched Moses on his mission to Egypt. And God leads Moses and the whole nation of Israel back to that place. So you can imagine what's playing through Moses' mind as he climbs that mountain to meet with God. Actually see what God says. Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. This is what God says to Moses. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. That's God's heart. That's God's purpose. That's God's mission for his people called Israel. God says, look, Israel, you're to be my partners in carrying on and carrying out my redemptive mission to the entire world. You're my priests. You represent me to the whole planet. God's assignment to Israel was that you are to tell the whole world about God, convincing everybody of his love for them. Every single person on earth. And what's so tragic is that Israel never really understood or grasped that. Instead of leveraging their chosen status, instead of being responsible for the mission and for the assignment that God gave them, they've more or less made it all about their privileged standing on the world stage. 
Now fast forward from there to the New Testament. I want you to hear from one of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of the Apostle Peter, as he actually looks back to and recalls the Moses at Sinai experience. Now this is Peter revealing for younger, more new followers of Jesus everything that it means to have a relationship with God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. See if this sounds familiar. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. God's, this is to us, by the way. This is to us. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness from into his wonderful life. Light, to. From, to. Sounds reminiscent of the language that God used with Moses at Sinai, doesn't it? And not only is the language similar, but the message is the exact same. Peter says, look, you, you who follow Jesus Christ, Jesus saved you so that your entire life, every single thing about your life, from morning to night, would be about passing the salvation you received on to others. It's all about passing it on to others. Every single thing. That's what it's all about. Everything else in life is quite peripheral. Passing the salvation you received on to others. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. That means, church, we've actually become heirs to the mission God gave originally to the people of Israel. Go and tell, go and tell, go and tell God's story of redemption to every person in the world is the proof of God's love for all of humanity. That means we're priests, church. We're priests of God's kingdom. We have this very weighty assignment of brokering the relationship between God Almighty and the rest of humanity. It's on us. It's on us. Trouble is a great deal of the capital C church in the world today suffers from what one man has called mission amnesia. Good term. We've actually forgotten, lots of us, that we're responsible for bringing God's redemptive mission to earth. That means lots and lots of Christians are really busy doing lots and lots of really good things, yet in large part we're leaving out the most important part of the mission. The purpose we've been saved to. Which is precisely why over the course of the coming months, coming years, we as a church called Journey are going to reconstruct how we approach ministry as a whole. We think it's going to look something like this. You didn't know that was there, did you? And just so you know, the top of the boat is the front. We're going north, not south. And today I'm asking every single one of you to get into that boat. To get into the canoe. And I want to say at the outset that this new approach to ministry isn't just our attempt to do church better. 
As a matter of fact, we're convicted that doing church better is actually part of what leads us as Christ followers into that mission amnesia I talked about a few moments ago. We do not as a church just need better methods. That's not what's wrong. We instead need inside of our hearts and lives to the very core of our beings to have the mission and purpose of God rebooted inside of us. Reignited inside of us. This is really all about us as a church community coming more alive to the purpose and mission that God's called us to over here. Everything that he's called us to to be about from here until he comes back. Let's talk about the front of the canoe, top of the canoe, Journey's weekend worship experiences, this gathering. We think that in this new model of ministry that these gatherings will remain one of the primary points of entry into the life and community of Journey Church. Time and time again, what God does in and through this room on the weekends amazes us, week in and week out. Biblical challenges, unifying encounters with God, multi-layered, multi-faceted decisions for Christ, cohesive vision, mission, purpose, they're all part of what God does in this room when we gather together like this. We think God smiles on these gatherings. We think this is good, and we're going to continue to pour energy and resources into making these weekend gatherings inviting, welcoming, challenging for all people, no matter their level of spiritual interest. From the person who's just kicking the tires of what it means to follow Jesus Christ to the person who's been walking with God for a few decades. Weekend worship experiences. Now go to the back of the canoe. See those two words right there? Missional communities. Missional communities. We're going to say it so much, so often that you're going to get sick of them, hearing them. But that's okay, because they're that important. Missional communities. And I'm telling you the truth, we're staking the future of our church on missional communities. On a missional community approach to ministry. And we put them at the back of the boat very, very intentionally. Because what do you know about the back of a boat? That's where thrust comes from, right? Now, you could absolutely climb into that canoe. I think you should slide it into a body of water first. Then you could climb into that canoe, and you could make it go paddling it from the front seat. You could make it work. But if you move to the back of the thing, it's going to go a whole lot better, isn't it? Thrust comes from the back of the boat. What else comes from the back of the boat? Steering, direction, where we're headed. They're all set from the back of the boat. You can... Again, sit in the front of the thing and make it go. But propulsion and direction come so much better from the back pushing forward. Back. So we're going to, in front of the canoe, continue what God's been doing for almost seven years now on the weekends. Thrust, direction, though, are coming from missional communities back of the boat, propelling us forward. Now, some of you are scratching your head saying, what in the world is a missional community? I thought you'd never ask. Great question. Here's what it is. It's probably a group of more than 20 people, first of all. A missional community is probably a group of more than 20 people. Those more than 20 people are gathered around the person we call the master. Now, what is a master? A master is someone who has, over a period of years, tangibly demonstrated that they know about living life on the mission of Christ. They're living out actively everything that Jesus has saved them 
to. It isn't just about what they've saved, he's saved them from. It's about what he's saved them to. They're living it out every single day. They wake up in the morning and they're burdened by the fact that there are lost people all around them who need Jesus, who are hellbound without him. And they set about doing something about that with the rest of their day. They are Jesus' witnesses. And people are coming to faith in Christ because of their witness. And masters demonstrate what it is to live on the mission of Christ. They invite the other people in their missional community to do that very same thing. They show them how to do it. It's the model that Jesus exercised. Come with me. I'm going to show you. Come with me. Watch as I do. And then you're going to go do. It's the model of discipleship making by Jesus himself. This isn't new. It's Christ. Now these missional communities, they are a subset of the larger journey church community. They aren't just an end unto themselves. They're not a little church just out there all alone. They're attached to the larger journey church community. So you see what we're doing? We're turning our church into a conglomeration of missional communities. A gathering of missional communities scattered out all over the place. Now, missional communities are unapologetically Christ-centered. They're all about Jesus from top to bottom, beginning to end. They aren't activity-centered. They're not affinity-centered. They're not little sort of covert ops trying to snare people by surprise into a relationship with Jesus, some sort of bait and switch. No, nothing like that at all. They are entirely unashamed of Christ's role and value and vision. Jesus, from beginning to end. Now these missional communities, they're tasked with helping people, watch this, become and then grow up as Christ followers. That means there isn't an entry bar for being a part of a missional community. Seekers are always welcome. There are always open chairs at every single Journey Church missional community. You can invite anybody you want to your missional community, no matter where they are at faith in Christ. Your missional community is going to meet them where they are, and then you're going to help them connect with God from that point going forward. And I love this. I love everything about missional communities, but this lights me up. Missional communities, watch this, carry a defined focus on reaching a neighborhood, a people group, or a network of relationships. That means missional communities have a thematic focus on who they're pursuing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe this missional community over here is all about reaching downtown Bozeman business people with the gospel. Maybe that missional community out there is dedicated to reaching West Valley farmers and dairymen with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that missional community over there is dedicated to reaching single parents who live in on-campus housing at MSU with the gospel. Sky's the limit, see, on who your missional community is pursuing with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about people. Helping people find Jesus Christ. You will be my witnesses. Jesus said. And of course, missional communities take place in community. They include things like food and fun and fellowship. And so, they're not just sitting in a circle sucking on lemon gatherings. Not like that. Now watch this. Because missional communities are making disciples, worship, prayer, 
and Scripture, say them again, worship, prayer, and Scripture are the core practices of missional communities. That's part of what it looks like. That's part of the path to becoming a fully formed follower of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Worship, prayer, and scripture. Every single time we are with our missional communities, worship, prayer, and scripture will be a part of what we do. We're not just reading good books, not just having nice discussions. Worship, prayer, and scripture. Which means that all of those things are going to elevate in the life of the Journey Church community. Worship is going to elevate. Prayer is going to elevate. The value of Scripture, our knowledge of Scripture, our understanding of God through Scripture is all going to elevate. Because worship, prayer, and Scripture are the core practices of these missional communities. And they're focused outward. Missional communities are focused outward. And they're focused outward not just by putting serving towels over our arms. That's good. Many times a serving towel over our arm will earn us a hearing of the gospel in somebody's life. But once we've earned that hearing, we're actually going to be Christ's witnesses. We're not just going to live our life and say, oh, they'll get it. We're actually going to tell the redemption story. We're going to tell them who Jesus is. Everything he died to do for them. Everything that he's calling them from. Everything he's calling them to. Missional communities will encourage what we'll call breakout groups of the larger group. Men and women are going to meet together in missional communities, right? But then maybe the men break off for covenant group, accountability group kind of stuff. Maybe women break off for the same. Those masters, as we call them, they receive ongoing resourcing, coaching, evaluation from the pastors who oversee our missional community initiative. And that's the thing that I ask you to pick up right now and start praying on please. Would you pray that the two people who are supposed to lead this initiative for us, our missional community initiative for us, end up on our staff team in relatively short order. We need these people yesterday. And so would you just take that up and would you just pray, please. The other thing about the masters is they don't do everything. It's like Jesus didn't do everything with his disciples. The master will facilitate and release the rest of the community to serve and lead and share, be my witnesses. And so, Journey, that's what missional communities are all about. And it's our aim over the coming months and years, every single person who calls Journey Church their home, that they would be a part of a missional community. Let that sort of sink in on you. That it would be the exception, if you've been around here for any length of time at all, to not be in a missional community. And we're just going to keep the heat turned up on that kettle. We'll talk about it, we'll invite, we'll prompt, we'll coach, we'll nudge, we'll exhort, we'll lovingly kick in the rear end if need be. We literally want every single person who calls Journey Church their home to be a part of a missional community. Those communities are absolutely vital to helping us live on the mission of Christ. They're helping us do it, not just talk about it. 
Now we have a whole bunch of people across the life of our church who are part of ongoing small groups. To you I say, great job. I'm really proud of you. I know you've benefited from your small group over the years or however long you've been in one. And could I ask this of you about your small group? Would you please hold a very open mind in the coming months about how your small group morphs into a missional community? We're not just going to exterminate your small group as it exists now. Quite a word, isn't it? Exterminate. But over time, we will be inviting, nudging your small group to shift its focus and purpose to becoming a missional community. Small groups are fantastic. They're very, very good at care and belonging. Loving each other, getting around each other, encouraging each other. And so the thing that small groups typically are not very good at is reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say that's leaving off way too big of purpose. It's leaving off the entire purpose that Jesus saved us to, remember? Hold an open mind. Be open to God's nudging and steering your group to morph into a missional community. Weekends at the front of the boat, missional communities in the back. Now, we're not ready to roll these out yet, okay? We're just not. We have some staff to hire. You're praying on that even now, right, to lead that. But we'll be ready over the course of the next few months to run a few pilot missional communities. We're very, very excited about piloting some of these, trial running them, if you will. If you're interested in mastering or being a part of one of these pilot missional communities, just grab a, chair, a card out of the chair pocket in front of you, write missional community pilot on there, name, address, phone number, email, all that stuff, hand it to an usher on the way out. We'll be in touch. Be a little patient on this with us if you would, please. Now let's talk about the outriggers because they're very important as well. We know that as a church we have to do a better job of facilitating connection and fellowship. We know this about us. And so along with rolling out missional communities, seeking to impact our community with the gospel, uh, with more fervor and impact. So this outrigger over here, where it says sub-congregations, those are really just informal, occasional gatherings where the Journey Church community can be together in sort of age-stage kinds of ways. We don't do enough of that. We haven't ever done enough of that. And I take full responsibility for that. Not shifting blame, I just step up and own it, apologize, seek forgiveness. Please forgive me. I haven't led well in that way. To prove that to you, I got an email this week from a family who is probably going to leave our church. Hate those emails. It's like a knife to the heart every single time. And the reason they're going to leave our church is because they never, ever, over the course of a couple of years, connected with anybody in a friendship kind of way. My bad. My bad is a huge bummer. And you read this email, it's long, and they talk effusively about how much they love Journey, they love what we're about, they just haven't connected. And I take that shortfall about our church very, very seriously. Our staff takes that shortfall very, very seriously. Ministry leaders take that shortfall very, very seriously, and we're gonna step up and we're gonna do something different about it. Those sub-congregations, as we're calling them, they're just semi-regular gatherings where young families, for example, would get together periodically just to be together. Acts 2 fellowship kind of stuff. 
Older adults, for example. Now, Chris Townley, our pastor of student ministries, he says you're an older adult if you're over 50. So, you over 50 people, according to Chris, you might gather together occasionally just to be with people who are in your zone in life. Friendship, fellowship. So, picture all the variety of sub-congregations. Young adults, 20-something singles, on and on and on the list goes. Just together. Acts 2, fellowship, friendship, and the like. We're going to do a better job at that. The other side, the other outrigger, the one that says ministries, that's just the continued expression of the variety of ministries across the life of Journey Church. Those ministries are primarily based on helping you, us, meet the goals that we have in our personal and spiritual growth and development. Ministries like the Dating Engaged and Marriage Ministries, they're over there. Men's and Women's Ministries are over there. Leadership development is over there. Student ministries are over there. Encompass, our adoption ministry, is over there. Ethiopia Hope is over there. Congregational care is over there. All kinds of ministries that operate around here that round out Journey's approach to ministry, which at the end of the day is encapsulated in our mission, which is doing whatever it takes to connect people to God. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. Doing whatever it takes to connect people to God. If anybody asks you what your church is about, we're just doing whatever it takes to connect people to God. April 14, 2012, marks the 100-year anniversary of the tragedy of the sinking of the Titanic. I'm sure that most all of you, unless you live in a cave, have seen James Cameron's 1997 fictionalized film version of the tragedy, right? Now, what Cameron was able to do there, and I'm sure what he's going to do a whole lot more of with the 3D re-release that's coming in early April. Did you know that? He's no dummy. So he's reaching back into our pocketbooks, re-releasing the thing in 3D. Smart guy. Something that he was able to bring home the first time that I'm sure he'll bring home again the second time is a reality that all previous film versions about the Titanic sinking had ignored. You know what it was? He managed to bring to life the reality of the hundreds of passengers who were still alive and screaming for help in the freezing waters of the Atlantic long after the ship had disappeared. Do you remember the scene? And I'm not talking about the Jack and Rose, I'll never let go scene, like floating on a door, like no. Hundreds of passengers literally freezing to death on the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. Remember that scene? In the sheer numbers of the Titanic disaster, they're as chilling as the water. 2,223 people on board the moment the ship hit the iceberg. Now, the ship was equipped with 20 lifeboats. Should have had more. Shipbuilder didn't want to clutter the decks with these unsightly lifeboats, especially on a ship that can't sink. And so there was 20. The total capacity of the lifeboats was 1,178. That was their carrying capacity. So even though there was room enough for more than half of the passengers who were on the boat to be saved, only 705 of them were rescued. Only 705 of them were rescued. 
the difference between the lifeboat capacity of 1,178 and 705 is 473. At least that many were still alive, thrashing about in the water for up to 40 minutes after the Titanic sank. Why in the world then didn't the lifeboats, which were only partially filled, go back and rescue drowning, dying people? Freezing people. We actually know the answer to that question. According to the book, the Titanic and Illustrated History, in sworn court testimony presented in the hearings that followed up the disaster, they pieced together the conversations that happened in those lifeboats. Did you know this? In lifeboat number one, for example, a man named Charles Hedrickson proposed going back to pick up some of those who were in the water. Lady Duff Gordon muttered something under her breath about the danger of their boat being swamped by all the people. Her husband, a man by the name of Sir Cosmo Gordon, who was also in the boat, which we wonder, what was he doing in the boat? Women and children first. What's he doing in the boat? He's in the boat. He offered five pounds each to the crewmen not to row them back. All of the other male passengers who were also in that lifeboat, what are they doing there? They agreed that the rescue would be far too dangerous. Lifeboat number one held 12 people. It could have carried 40. In lifeboat number eight, several passengers strenuously pressed for going back. One guy said out loud that he would rather die with those in the water than row off and be safe. The majority overruled him, though. Quartermaster Hitchens, one of the ship's crew, graphically described what would happen if they returned. He painted a picture of desperate drowning people capsizing them. It's no use us going back for a lot of stiffs, he said. Those words. In the end, two lifeboats went back. Two lifeboats. Number four and 14. And by the time they responded, they saved just three people. Three. And far too often, Journey, we who call ourselves Christians, we act just like those lifeboat occupants who refuse to go back and rescue the perishing masses, don't we? May it never, ever be of us. Every single one of us who claims the name of Jesus Christ, we are tasked with the role of being a rescue worker. You're a rescue worker. And what do we know about rescue workers? They refuse to quit. They work 24-7. Rescue workers are willing to go to plan B, C, D, Z, whatever it takes to bring about a rescue. Journey Church, will you get on the redemptive rescue mission of God? Will you get in the rescue boat and will you set sail? And will you do whatever it takes to connect people to God? Will you be about, will you make everything in your life about joining God in his redemptive plan to save the world? 
will you get about it? Because what's absolutely true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that people all around us every single day are thrashing around in the dark and frigid night. And they're going to die. And they're not just going to die a physical death. They're going to die an eternal death. And they're going to spend eternity separated from God in a horrible real place called hell. And they're going to go there unless you and I go rescue them. Will you take up your mantle as a rescue worker? Let's go, Journey. Let's go. The eternal destiny of souls is at stake. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads, please? Just invite you to go to prayer and interact with the Lord if you would. our prayer is very, very simple today. Would you please set us with fervor and passion and zeal on the mission that you saved us to? That it would be the highest purpose, the highest order of our lives. the mission and the purpose of being your witnesses would blow everything else in our lives out of the water. That every single one of us would wake up in the morning and that we would be gripped, God, by the plight of the lost. And then God, compel us to do something about it, please. Compel us to go and share. To use words, to bear witness, to tell the redemption story, God. Make us your rescue workers. Help us live in that purpose, in that reality, in that incredibly high calling. Nothing else even comes close to the privilege of being your rescue worker, God. We take it up. We take it up.